0: infilling the missing middle of council coverage. This week, we're joined by Ashley Salvador and Michael Jans of Métis and Papasteo. They'll tell us what we missed so that we can tell you what you missed. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 173. Mac is going on vacation, so we're recording this Monday, as we always try to do when it's a episode that we have to record for Max Vacation Time, <laughs> and the secret location, we try to get guests on. There's so many of those. Yeah, yeah. We've There's been an abundance of vacations in the past two years, haven't there? Oh, so many. Yeah. We've got a good slew of guests today. Uh, we'll be joined by two councillors to tell us what we didn't tell you about City Council, but we cannot hear from them until we first hear the Rapid Fire segment. The ghosts of 77 blue spruce trees are thanking the city of Edmonton this week for their quick commute to their final resting place. In order to make way for a neighborhood sidewalk and bike route, the city has cut down 77 trees near the Mount Pleasant Cemetery. Said the representative of the wooded plants, Leafy McAcorn, quote, We're appreciative of the efficiency gains of killing things right next to a cemetery, but for the life of us, or lack of, I guess, we can't figure out why the city is improving that painted bike lane right here. It seems designed for that purpose. Dozens of educators, parents, and children gathered at the Alberta legislature Saturday to call on the government to scrap the
1: draft kindergarten through grade six curriculum— but we were met with resistance from a UCP caucus
0: that was hesitant to throw out the only education they have. AHS CEO Dr. Verna Yu was fired Monday morning, a year before a contract was set to expire and less than a year before the provincial election. When asked about the firing of the head of the public health service after two years of global pandemic and at the crest of a sixth wave, Health Minister Jason Coping was perplexed, saying, quote, The goal of healthcare is to take care of people, right? Well, we just took care of her. Speaking municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network,
1: locally grown, community supported. This episode is brought to you by ATB. ATB was built to help Alberta businesses. From Canadian emergency business account applications to lending information, debt consolidation loans or deferrals, whatever your business is facing right now, ATB is here to help with expert advice. And with today's economy top of mind in business, you can stay up to date with the Future of podcast, hosted by ATB's chief
0: economist, Todd Hirsch. To learn more, visit ATB.com. Well, Mac's going to be off on vacation this week. He will be gallivanting off somewhere in the world. Again, he doesn't tell me where he goes, <laughs> uh, probably for security reasons. I'm not sure. But he will be gallivanting the world, we'll say, over in Ecuador. Ecuador. Wow. Yeah. Yes. Amazing. So we sent a last-minute email to... A bunch of people trying to get them to join us on the show. All of them declined, so we're stuck with counselors Salvador and <laughs> Jans. Welcome to the show, counselors from Papasteo and Metis.
2: Thanks for having us. <laughs> Always
3: glad to guest on municipally speaking.
0: Oh, Troy, you're so mean. We're walk- welcome. We're, we're glad to have both of you. Thank you for taking the time. In the pre-show, we said, hey, you both have been on the show before. Should we just start? And then, of course, Ashley pipes up and she's like, well, I haven't actually really been on the show before. And I'm like, oh, well, (laughs) welcome to the show. Introducing to you by uh, mocking you. That is the speaking municipally (laughs) way.
2: That's exactly what I would have expected. This
3: will all get cut in edits.
0: That's all up to me. And speaking of things that you want to get cut in the edit, Michael, I want to talk to you about your counselor intro, because when you introduced yourself to us and our podcast listeners, you said, quote, I had a very ambitious multifaceted platform, but it's useless if you cannot find champions to work with you. So I see my job as not necessarily scoring goals, but to help get assists by helping others get goals. Now, How exactly does proposing 17 policy positions per day and then sending a (laughs) press release to the journal Global and demanding that they write about it serve the goal of supporting teams scoring goals?
3: I think that... There's value sometimes in planting a lot of seeds in year one, watering them and helping them grow through year two. By year three, you're picking apples and by four, you're sharing the jam with everybody. So ultimately, I mean, you can ask Ashley if she wanted to comment on my approach or not, but there's been some things I've raised that have been preemptive. Other things have been reactionary. We've had something in front of us that we've had to act on immediately, so there's been a few motions I've made that, like the Enterprise Alliance Division or other councillors have made, like say when Councillor Stevenson moved the revisiting the Qualco the Pedway, there's been situations where we're actually reviewing or changing course with previous council. And that's part of it is because of the timing. We kind of have to act quickly in year one to set our own direction. So I don't know if that answers your question.
1: Is it a different strategy than what you thought it was going to be when you started this term? Or is it a more of a refinement of your strategy, would you say?
3: What's that saying? Muhammad Ali said the best strategy goes out the window once you get punched in the face. And I think sometimes <laughs> you get to the council table and things land in front of you that require action or, you know, you, you want to swing at those pitches I think I've been. You've seen through my record some of the things I proposed past, some of them haven't. But ultimately, it's it's about um, both getting your council colleagues on board, but also educating the public and helping get them on board. So when they see, you know, you raising different topics, it helps to bring other people and engage other people and help bring greater solutions forward in the community. So whether it's noisy motorbikes or whether it's uh, a conversation about green building standards, sometimes it takes multiple years to get these things over the finish line. So Early,
1: Ashley, take us into City Hall behind the the corridor a little bit. Is everybody just happy for Councilor Jans to take the heat on everything? Are you feeling <laughs> like you there's not enough, you know, room and space for others to get their voices heard? What, what's the feeling? Is is there a general feeling?
2: You know, I obviously can't speak for colleagues, but uh, I, I've i really enjoyed working alongside Councillor Jans. I think that, as he mentioned, being able to get a lot of ideas out there relatively early on in our term, I think it's important. You know, it, it helps set the stage for some of those longer term conversations while still allowing us to take advantage of some quicker wins. And, you know, I reflect on... Decisions like the ELD decision, the enterprise Lands decision, uh, I don't think we would have had that conversation if Councillor Jans had not flagged that very early on. (laughs) I think it was I think it was still the during orientation. So that was really great to see. And uh, yeah, I think everyone is kind of getting into their groove for me. You know, I. I'm trying to be quite strategic i i kind of <laughs> lined up uh specific items that i know i want to bring forward that are closely aligned with my platform and what i ran on and kind of picking and choosing those moments uh having those longer term goals and priorities things that are you know big city building projects like the zoning bylaw renewal or district planning that's that's long term and it's um something you're constantly working towards but there's also you know, quick things you can take advantage of. Even today, I made a motion around boulevard gardening, you know, allowing community members to uh, naturalize, have wildflowers, garden beds, uh, permaculture on their their treed boulevard instead of grass. Uh, So I think it's finding that balance of working towards those long goals while still pushing alongside your colleagues for quicker, easier wins that are going to make a difference right away.
0: It's nice to have both of you on because there's a contrasting approach sort of readily apparent. And that is on twitter.com. Ashley, before you got elected, you were quite active on Twitter, commenting and engaging and in some cases fighting with people on Twitter. Post-election, that has tapered off. There's still activity, of course, and still engagement, but it is very much a professional counselor interaction with public constituents. Contrast to... Michael Jans, uh, code of conduct, not violating. We ruled innocent on 24 counts, but gets not, guilty. Not, not guilty. Not <laughs> guilty. Yeah. But if he did do it, his Twitter account would be a blueprint for how you might aggravate other people. Was it a conscious choice to sort of like scale back and be more cautious on the Twitter or are you just sort of like slammed with an office and can't really find time for social media?
2: That's a great question. Um, you know, I think one of the the biggest strengths of of my campaign was being really active on social media. I mean, especially given the conditions of the pandemic, it was one of the primary ways that people were, were connecting in with us. Um, I'll be very honest. It's very hard to find time <laughs> when you're sitting in council meetings, public hearings, meetings with different stakeholders, community members for hours and hours a day. So absolutely still trying to push out that important content that I know folks want to hear. But at the same time, yeah, there's there's a limited capacity. You know, we work really long hours. We work really hard. But that is something that I intend to kind of amp up. We're also... I think all officers are just kind of finding that groove and uh, balancing policy work and research work with constituent increase, as well as communications and social media.
3: Can I also add for me, like I feel like coming into year one council, I'm actually in year 12 because I've had 11 years of school board experience beforehand where I was board chair, I was moving motions, I was dealing with stuff at our AUMA and our FCM and stuff like that. So for me, there's some things where I'm coming in hot and like I'm ready to go. Tuesdays when we have our public hearings, though, I'm often silent and I'm looking to people like Ashley and Anne who have done a lot of planning and development work. I often call Ashley and Seeker Council counsel on those matters. So while I may appear to be pushing ahead in some areas, I'm actually kind of riding slipstream on people like Ashley on other planning and development concerns. And Ashley has led uh, a number of charges on our Tuesday meetings where she has actually demanded better of developers. And I've kind of been following her lead there. So I think you'll see with her council, there's that uh, we have a lot of different bench strengths in a lot of different areas.
0: We pitched before the episode, hey, we've got two counselors on. Uh, we produce a podcast every week and we tell people what they need to know about city council. But you sitting in the chair may have a different perspective on what people need to know or what doesn't get covered by the media, including and not including us. And one of the points that you hit is exactly what you're talking about. This public hearing that we've had a lot of development decisions go through public hearing that maybe didn't get as much public attention as they should have in your opinion take us through some of those things
2: yeah so happy to jump on that uh you know it's interesting we have these these tuesday public hearings that usually go Yeah, usually tell about 9.30 at night. Um, Some of them are longer than others. And one of the most striking things that I've noticed about our public hearings is just the amount of, you know, missing middle style infill projects that this council has said yes to. You know, I contrast that with previous councils where decisions might have been quite contentious. Eight, four votes, 7-6 votes uh, are now 11-2, 13 And I actually think that's a big change. And it's one of those changes that doesn't really make the headlines because it's more cumulative. You know, it, it happens at our Tuesday meetings, at those public hearings. And I think we've been proving some really exciting projects that are truly going to move us closer to some of our city plan goals. Um, helping add density back to our mature neighborhoods, helping ensure there's enough families to keep our schools open, customers to keep uh, local businesses supported. And as someone who was quite a huge city council nerd for years before I was elected, I've watched things like the city plan, our guiding document, our guiding vision for a city take shape and to see this newly elected council so committed to it and constantly referring to, you know, how does this project line up with city plan? Is this dense enough? Is this going to be supportive of of our our active transit goals, our public transit goals? That's super exciting. Uh, But again, something like a rezoning from a single family house to a row house or a medium density project, sometimes they're not even selected for debate because councillors are aligned on these types of items.
1: Why do you think there's a difference between these smaller items and Some of the bigger ones that we've heard about, like, for example, you know, the uh, development on Calgary Trail, between Calgary Trail and Gateway Boulevard, by the superstore, those big empty parking lots, it didn't seem like an 11 to 2 or 13 nothing vote on uh, aligning with city plan. So some of the ones that do make it into the news, I think, don't paint the same picture of the council as you're describing from public hearing.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think those are the types of projects that that do make headlines that the news does pick up on because they are more controversial. I think the one that you're referencing in particular was really interesting to see You know, different perspectives reflected uh, around the council table, a number of us, myself and Councillor Jans included, pushing for greater uh, active transportation connectivity and pedestrian connectivity for a site like that.
3: And better urban design. That was the other half of the motion that never really got touched on. It's just going to be, you know... A project that's another another auto dependent mixed use commercial. Instead, we were trying to say, well, can can we demand a little better? Can we make something that's a little more pedestrian friendly and a little more integrated with the streetscape? Can we think different than just strip malls? But that didn't pass, right? No, but it was close. And I don't think you would have seen even that fight for those hours uh, out of previous councils. But here, I think we're demanding better, and I think those signals are getting out there that you know if you come in with same old same old, you are going to have a rougher ride at council.
0: I think it's fair to say there's a bit of a voting click forming. That's you, Ashley, and uh, sometimes Aaron Rutherford. Sometimes Joanne Wright. Sometimes Joanne Wright. Uh, The sort of, I don't want to call it progressive click, because those labels are very difficult to uh, apply to city council decisions, but taking the stance of pushing further um, and often getting voted down something like, you know, seven to four or something like that. Do you think there is a a downside to losing those votes and losing those votes publicly um, in that it does present this narrative Mac is talking about where city council isn't aligned and not so much agreed on some of these core things like city plan?
3: Absolutely not. I think it's fine. Democracy's messy. People know that. People want to see that if you're asking for $14 million to build a parkade right beside an LRT station, that councillors are going to, you know, (laughs) councillors are going to get into it a bit. I think that's totally fair.
2: A huge part of our, our role is to engage in that type of dialogue. And I think that it's important for Edmontonians to see that. And it also helps bring Edmontonians along too, right? If we're having a conversation about whether or not a development is pedestrian oriented enough, whether or not the quality of urban design is good enough. Those are the types of questions that I think folks want to hear. They want to know that their representatives are, um, you know, being really conscientious and critical and, and asking those types of questions that ultimately, when we look back in 20, 30, 40 years, are going to have made a difference.
3: And I mean, you're making it sound like you're making it sound like there's this click of four that, you know, try and fight things. What about are you saying there's a click of eight that just rubber stamp things? Because I don't think that's true either. Okay, because you almost said it, but I didn't. um. (laughs) Like, I honestly have gone into so many votes having no idea how they're going to turn out. And being okay with that, knowing that sometimes the fight is the point. The fight is the point to educate people, to raise awareness, to raise issues, and to set up the next call. So this development maybe wasn't perfect. But, you know, next time we can demand better. And that is how you move things forward. I mean, Councillor Alan Bolstad, one of my mentors, told me that it took him five times at City Council to ban smoking in bars. But eventually he got it done and it just takes time.
0: Take us inside your inbox. What's the order of magnitude that a councillor is getting in terms of emails per day or per week? Are you getting like one or two per day? Is it 7,000? What's the threshold here?
3: We did account, we had IT pull, and in the first three months we had over 4,500 emails. That's a lot.
1: That's a lot of email. We,
3: we, we get a lot of emails that are either, sometimes they're chain letters or like from, say, there's a group emailing us about Lucy the Elephant, so... You know, there's a, I still am getting a lot of correspondence about that. You may get sometimes people write just council as a whole with their general feelings on an issue. Other times you get specific ward concerns, um, individually. Uh, sometimes you get people emailing you about things that really don't belong to city hall at all. They belong to say, uh, a, the federal government, provincial government, or, or, you know, maybe, maybe a, a
0: therapist.
1: Yeah. A therapist. <laughs> like you, uh, you're, it's
3: you know, you never know. Right. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's really interesting.
1: Michael, I bet you got a lot of email about the police association code of conduct complaint, uh, that Troy mentioned earlier. Do you have an update for us? Are you and Michael Elliott best friends now? Any update that you can share with listeners?
3: Uh, I have no, I have no update on, on that file. No in that it in, that <laughs> seems
0: like a bad thing if i'm being honest i had seen in an article that you had apparently reached out for an apology or for some peace offering was there no peace to be made here time
1: will tell <laughs> can you tell us if you have had any correspondence with him since the the news broke
3: uh no he was away on vacation or he was away from office for a while so i uh we we never connected yeah i don't i don't really have a, a story here i mean to be honest it's a distraction from some of the really important issues like we've seen there's been four shootings so mm-hmm. far this year we still don't know the name of a innocent person who was shot through a window just a few blocks from your home mac like there's real important issues here. And I have no interest in talking about social media. I have interest in talking about how we can build a police service that we can all be proud of.
0: Well, we're not going to talk about that because this is the uh, episode about things that we didn't spend six episodes covering. (laughs) Hey, had to ask, had to ask. (laughs) So we're going to move on to something that, um, well, you put in this document as uh, something that wasn't covered quite enough recently shone a light on epcor executives and director compensations and you have been saying that it is a little bit high take us in we haven't talked about this on the podcast much What's what's your thesis statement here?
3: Yeah, so I've been involved in council campaigns since 2007, and no one really talks about EPCOR. It flies under the radar. It, you know, it's our utility. It's one of the things we need to, you know, flush the toilets and turn on the lights. Yet, we don't really have a lot of public scrutiny and oversight and discussion about this. It's compared to any other topic, bridges, snow removal. Yet, when you look at it, we're talking about billions of dollars. And so I was really interested in executive compensation Has come up at the universities. It's come up in AHS. It's come up for superintendents and and school systems. And yet I hadn't heard any conversation about, since EPCOR was privatized, what the executive suite and what the board of directors were making. I think, you know, many city of Edmonton boards receive a small stipend. I think it can be $400 a meeting or something to help uh, honor, honor people's time. But when I dug into the EPCOR CEO compensation, as well as the board of director compensation over the last decade, I was shocked about how much money was being spent and paid. And why this is really important is because EPCOR generates a dividend to Edmontonians. It's been $171 million, I think, for the last five or six years. This year, it's going up to $178 So what that means is all of the money, because Edmonton is the sole shareholder, all of the money that EPCOR makes that could be profit is either reinvested in EPCOR or paid to the city of Edmonton. So if there's efficiencies to be found and if there's excessive executive compensation, those have an impact on what the dividend could be. So when, we, when I see that many of us as a council were, you know, last year when you, you, you think about the public hearings where we had almost a day's worth of speakers fighting to find a million dollars to keep our pools and rec centers open, yet I find out that the CEO of EPCOR is being compensated at almost $3 million or $2.4 million last year, $2.9 million the year before. That's quite concerning, especially when you look at, say, comparators in the public sector, such as the CEO of BC Hydro, I think, makes uh, 550 Ontario Hydro I think makes 1.5 million Sask Power makes 561,000 Manitoba Hydro 465,000 across the board there's much more reasonable compensation especially when you consider Epcor used to be a city department so had Epcor remained a city department those executives would be making a very generous you know 300,000 or something like that but not not tilting at a million dollars so every dollar that's spent in in Epcor is uh, a dollar that could come back to Edmontonians that would help either alleviate the tax burden or help pay for services. So I'm interested in seeing scrutiny, just just a heightened level of scrutiny from council, not just over the management salaries, but also how can we work with EPCOR um, to accomplish some of our city plan goals, our climate goals, and those other pieces. So I think for years, EPCOR has just kind of been there and it hasn't been scrutinized by council, but I think it's worth having that conversation.
1: Epcor, in response, said that they pay competitive salaries and also that they do have third party independent review already of their CEO and uh, director compensation. Do you think they don't do enough? Do you think they're getting bad advice? Do you think there's something else
3: going on here? What's your take? So the problem is in the identity of Epcor. They're comparing against other private sector comparators. They're looking at private sector organizations when in reality Epcor is private, but it's fully owned by the city of Edmonton. So I think a much better comparison would be some of those crown corporations I mentioned, like Manitoba Hydro or Ontario Hydro or Sast Power, BC Hydro. I mean, and even then a the provincial utility, BC Hydro, if their CEO is only making five hundred and fifty six thousand and our Epcor CEO is making then we've got a major problem here. So to me saying, well, our salaries are high, but they're comparable with the rest of the private market, to me, isn't a justification. It's an indictment of the private market.
0: Are you suggesting that it may be time to
3: repatriate EPCOR into the city of Edmonton? Should it become a city department again? I don't know that we need to go that far. I think there could be very much some benefits of having EPCOR as a standalone. There could be benefits of having it internal to the city. But one thing we can do as city council is make our intentions known to the board of directors that we expect the board compensation to be much more aligned with the city of Edmonton or other public comparators. And same thing for the executive compensation. To have a CEO at Epcor who's making a salary that exceeds the highest of any city manager and or city employee in Edmonton is a problem. Just looking at the board compensation for a second. If you look at the board chair of the EPCOR board, I think they're making 237,000. But if you look at the board chair of ETB Financial, the entire Alberta treasury branch, they're only making 73,000. So I wanna be clear, like I'm okay with paying people fair salaries and fair wages, but I think what's happened is absent scrutiny. We've allowed EPCOR to have this identity that they're a private company, yet, they function with all of the protections in the sole shareholder of basically a public entity. So I think it's important as we look forward and we're trying to find tax dollars under every rock. We're trying to be fiscally responsible as a council. I think looking at executive compensation should absolutely be on the table. And if that even generates another, you know, five million a year that can be returned back to the city of Edmonton, well, that will keep our neighborhood pools and rinks open just a little bit longer.
1: I think there has been discussion about EPCOR over the years, but mainly related to whether or not they should have been made private and whether or not things like water should have been transferred to them. But I think it might be hard for people to become critical of them when they do return such a large dividend to the city every year. And I fully take your point that it could be more and that every dollar counts and that uh, we should see scrutiny on that. But in contrast to something like the police service, where we don't know what we're paying them, maybe we're paying them a lot too, but they don't send anything back, it makes it easier maybe for some folks to look at that
3: and and, and, and ask some questions. And I think that's exactly the problem. People have been blinded by the dividend and thought, oh gee, if we if we ask any questions, this could jeopardize the dividend or without actually saying, why is it only 178 million? How do we get it up to 188 million or 288 mm. million? This is exactly the point that, you know, The size of the money is immaterial, it's the principle here. We need to demand and think like owners for all of our assets. And I think it's fair to say, okay, EPCOR has been going out and making acquisitions. Uh, Are we getting a fair rate of return? And and is this benefiting Edmontonians? And uh, we should be critical of that and scrutinize it. I mean, EPCOR functions in a very safe environment and uh, it's a very stable marketplace here in Edmonton and here in Alberta. If we could find even another $10 million from this, I mean, that would exceed the revenue from many other functions within the city.
0: So we go in. Michael has legally mandated, I don't know, felt like six hours of podcast <laughs> content about uh, EPCOR salaries. I'm not paid an EPCOR board chair $200,000 <laughs> to listen to this all day. So we're gonna move on and talk about something that both of you have mentioned in the lead of the program. And that's something that we have... Never to my knowledge, Mac talked about on the podcast. I don't think so. No, which is the enterprise lands development. Both of you citing as a big win. So for the listener that gets their news from this podcast, they know nothing about this. What are you talking about when you're talking about the enterprise lands development?
2: Yeah, happy to happy to explain that, and that's something that I learned about very early on after becoming counselor. Uh, So. Essentially, the city of Edmonton has, for many decades, had a line of business that acts as a suburban greenfield and industrial development wing. So basically building roads, sewers, and doing the land prep to service new neighborhoods. Um, And actually, fun fact, Mill Woods, for example, was actually a product of Enterprise Lands. So Enterprise Lands over the years has steadily been making a return for Edmontonians in the form of a dividend for, at this point, decades. And I should just pause to say, uh, before we get into this conversation, I think most folks know this, but I am not necessarily a proponent of future outward expansion and suburban growth. Uh, But the reality is, under our city plan, we are essentially locked into a certain amount of greenfield growth, mostly in the south. Uh, Because those areas already have something called area structure plans. That's important for the context of this. Previous council decided to make some moves to sell off uh, our greenfield holdings and to actually exit greenfield development from ELD. And the argument at the time was that we should be directing our energy towards more info-oriented city building projects. Uh, specifically, the intention was to you know, free up funds so that we could make some catalyst-type investments in Rossdale uh, as well as exhibition lands, which I totally understand, uh, because I want to see those projects built as well. <laughs> I want to see them move forward. Uh, but at the same time, uh, after how many days of debate, Michael? <laughs> We, uh, we arrived at a point where, um, you know, we felt that it was not in the city's best interest to be selling off our greenfield holdings and that selling off those holdings was not necessarily the best way to achieve some of those larger city building priorities. We were essentially faced with this choice of, okay, uh, we can make more of a short-term play, uh, potentially suffer the long-term consequences. Selling now versus developing out to 2040 ended up being a difference of about, I think it was 150 to $190 million. Yeah, my approach to this conversation uh, was essentially, Actually, someone's going to develop these lands at the outskirts of our city. Uh, Someone's going to be making money off of these greenfield lands. They are going to get built, whether we want them to or not. And I think we should be the ones that are making that money. And I think we should continue doing what we've been doing for years. Uh, And at the same time, I think we should use the retained earnings that we generate from ELD to invest in the city building catalyst projects that we say we want to invest in. So I was like, why not both? Like I said, it was a huge conversation. There was a lot of learning that had to happen because this has been a conversation that's been going on for, for a long time that precedes our election but um, I'll turn it over to Councillor Jans because he was the one that brought it forward.
3: Yeah, I think Ashley pitched it perfectly. I think the the question as well was, you know, if we sell all these lands right now, we will get some money. But if we hang on to them and sell them gradually, uh, we'll get a lot more money. But it's not just about the money. It's also about when the city parcels up and sell these sells these lots, they can go to small developers, first-time builders, people who... Are not able to marshal, you know, a massive amount of money to purchase a whole block or a whole neighborhood. What we do by through this enterprise lines approach is we give small businesses a chance to get started, and it's really about uh, supporting small entrepreneurs and small builders who who want to get going. So it, there's also kind of a a social angle to this, not not just a financial return on investment. Also, it it helps from preventing a monopoly from happening in our suburban development where there's only two or three key big players that can kind of do whatever they want, pay whatever they want, demand whatever concessions they want. What this does is it allows the city to have their hand in the mix and uh, to help keep a competitive economy that better serves everyone. So it was a complex, uh, file. But I think it's a really exciting win because at the end of the day, council did say, you know, there is money to be made. We think we should be making that money. And that money can now go forward to offset our taxes and to pay for services and to help us in uh, in building going forward.
1: Actually, I see in the notes that it was a close vote, 7-6. So what were some of the arguments against keeping the city in the ELD game?
2: You know, we—I kind of alluded to it, but um, a number of folks felt that by getting out of this space, uh, we'd be freeing up some of those funds for immediate investment Mm. in um, some of those catalyst projects. Um, But as Councillor Jan said, you know, it was that short-term benefit versus a bit of a longer-term play where we would ultimately generate more in the long run it comes in as as a bit more of a trickle I would say but again when we talk about city building you have to think in generations right and that's something I always try to apply to my decision making but again I think we were also presented with a situation where it was you know kind of a a false dichotomy like it wasn't like we couldn't invest in these catalyst projects if we didn't move ahead with uh with ELD decision you know we can do both and I think that was something that I really tried to reiterate that yes we can stay in ELD we can continue to have that trickle that fantastic investment that's going to help for years to come and we can use the money we earn from those activities to reinvest in priority infill areas it's not it wasn't an either or for me
0: So, one of the things that you mentioned uh, as part of this was, you know, long term, this will generate us more revenue as the city. And now you and Michael both have indicated several times that you're not all about let's sprawl out the city further as a rule. There's going to be a point where you're not sitting on city council. And there comes a risk where a city council has a different perspective. And now, is there a risk? Of the city continuing to be in greenfield development and seeing the golden goose of ELD and thinking, well, you know, if we're a little bit short on property tax this year, let's just greenfield some more. Let's ramp up ELD and sell some more. Is there a risk of treating this as a golden goose that encourages for financial gain sprawl?
2: So one thing that we didn't mention that was a part of this conversation as well was actually around um, more of a policy conversation that that addresses uh, the activities and the kind of strategic direction of ELD. And um, ELD is actually going to be having a look at that. Yes, uh, traditionally, historically, it, it has definitely been involved on the suburban side, but I um, My understanding is that there are active conversations going on about what is the future of ELD? How can we ensure that ELD's activities are aligned with our city plan goals? So that's that's one thing I would say. Um, And then the other part of your question and your comment, when I think about sort of successive councils and and the goal and vision that we're trying to achieve here, ultimately city plan, which which does draw a boundary around our current borders. You know, it does say that the city of Edmonton is not supposed to grow beyond current boundaries. Um, so like no more annexing land beyond beyond our boundaries.
0: When you say current boundaries, does that include sort of like that massive amount of areas yes. near
3: Beaumont? Okay. And the ones that go all the way up to Fort Saskatchewan.
2: Yes, exactly. And that's why there there is going to be more suburban development. If you look at uh, the city plan targets from now to, you know, 1.5 million, the vast majority of that growth is still in South Edmonton. So again, this is a long-term plan. Um, absolutely, we need to incrementally ramp up our infill development to the point where we're seeing fifty percent infill. But again, suburban development is—it's going to happen. A lot of these projects and a lot of these parcels already have neighborhood structure plans, area structure plans, uh, which are essentially, you know, legal agreements that give developers the right to build out these properties.
3: If anybody tells you that city plan is going to stop sprawl and ban. Cars- cars, send them back. They haven't read City Plan. Yeah. Mac,
0: we should take another look at City Plan I guess,
1: before we keep saying it's good.
3: <laughs> well, hey, I never
1: thought City Plan would stop it. I thought that was your job as the, uh, the, <laughs> the people around the council table to vote down developments that uh, can go ahead. I just want to clarify that. Is that true, Ashley? It's not a legal document that guarantees we have to sprawl right an ASP or an NSP those things can be amended or changed or repealed or I mean you can do whatever you want right
2: yes they they can be they can be amended they can be repealed very uncommon when it comes to to the city plan that's our our municipal development plan Um, so it's like highest level plan and as you get more granular that's where you start to get into yeah more of the the detailed development plans for each area that makes sense.
3: You're going to see an interesting inquiry coming back soon from Councillor Rutherford about the true costs of growth and some of the financial impacts. Um, This was already highlighted in city plan, then Ashley may want to speak to it. But um, I think it's another sign that our council is trying to do true cost accounting for all of our planning decisions.
1: Well, just to push back on that a little bit, I mean, we've had the growth coordination strategy coming out of the previous municipal development plan. Council, what are we at, 15 years ago now, was asking questions about the cost of sprawl. And we know that it costs the city money to continue growing out. So how is anything different going to happen now?
2: One thing that I would say, and that I always come back to, is the city plan is only as good as its implementation. We constantly, as councillors, have to be referring back to it. And given that the city plan is such a high level document, we are just now getting into district planning, zoning bylaw renewal, our growth management framework, and all of these tools for implementation that are actually gonna ensure it gets done. And, and ultimately that's gonna come back to political will. You know, Do we have the folks around the table, which I, I believe we do, to carry out that vision? So, yes, we we can have uh, fantastic visionary documents like the city plan um, or MAC, like you mentioned, previous municipal development plan. But at some point, it does come down to the decisions we make in council chambers on a daily basis.
3: Mm-hmm. And on Tuesdays at our public hearing, which exactly. to Ashley's point, Ashley, would you say that our planning and development approach has been congruent with city plan?
2: Yes, I believe it has.
3: What about the Glenora DC1?
2: That one didn't get much coverage either, did it?
3: But like, there's an example where how did, like, I mean, I think in speaking municipally, episode 36, they may have covered how you can't even get the the last council wouldn't do like a duplex in Glenora. Mm -hmm. And then uh, now uh, there's a there's a different approach coming. And I credit a lot of that to uh, the new counselors who are coming forward and leading here.
0: No, the credit goes to Speaking Municipally, episode 36, (laughs) for driving the change. (laughs) So I want to get close to the wrap, but uh, Ashley, you mentioned the zoning bylaw renewal. Aren't we due to have that done like now? When is the new zoning bylaw coming? Because I'm waiting with bated breath here.
2: (laughs) So the zoning bylaw renewal is going to take a little longer than expected. Uh, it has been pushed to next year, but we are going to be getting an update this month that is going to give us a bit of a look into sort of the approach that's being taken with the zoning bylaw renewal and the high level direction of it. So we're, we're going to get a taste of it, which I'm really excited for. Um, again, huge, huge body of work, our current zoning bylaw really has its roots in like the 70s and 80s. So it's super outdated. Um, So yeah, looking forward to that, but wish it was sooner.
0: Uh, Speaking of things that are coming up, uh, I want to get your quick take because we talked about this last week and it's top of mind for me. The 100th Street Bridge. uh, I'm sure this will be coming to cancel for some more feedback quite soon. What are your thoughts on the, uh, you know, tens of millions of dollars project to connect the funicular with the other side of the top of the hill.
3: I took a bike ride over to Grant Notley Park on the weekend, and we have a number of incredible benches and lookouts that give you panoramic views of the River Valley to spend $10 million at a time when we have so many neighbors in Edmonton who are sleeping rough, when we have so many other pressing climate emergency priorities. I think there comes a time when we, need to not just build new, but also try and retrofit what we have. And I think there's elements of that hill that we may need to take a different approach to. I'm not sure building a $10 million bridge is that approach.
0: Uh, so Ashley, since Michael didn't agree with me, can I get your thoughts on the bridge? <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, you know, I I haven't had too much time to review it, I'll be very honest. Uh, from what I have seen, I, I am actually excited by the design absolutely but as michael said absolutely there's other pressing priorities um but i do think that being able to to invest in this this area of our downtown is is also important you know it it does act as sort of that pedestrian cyclist connector which is a a, a draw for downtown i would say
3: And it would be incredible for the viewpoints and all of those other pieces. But I want to make sure we bolt down 500 kilometers of bike lanes that we need for the connectivity in our active transportation corridors so everybody can move actively safely before we get carried away with the modern architecture.
1: Don't worry, Troy. You'll still get your lookout when they build the gondola.
3: (laughs) Oh, can you cut that? Can you cut that?
0: (laughs) Uh, So before we close... Uh, we always give our guests an opportunity to plug something that's coming up. Uh, In your cases, your plugs are council work. So was there anything that we haven't covered just yet that you think really ought to be covered?
2: Yes. Oh, cool.
0: What's what's that?
2: (laughs) Okay. So April 11th, there's a report coming back on problem properties. This is an incredibly important issue um, that I do not think has gotten adequate attention. In Ward Métis, in particular, the Alberta Ave area has been experiencing just a rash of fires and arson. Between November 2020 and October 2021, there were 429 fire-related events. Uh, again, huge concentration in the Alberta Ave area, and many of these are deliberately set or are suspicious uh, and associated with vacant or derelict buildings. So, I mean, I've been getting Regular calls from community members.
3: That's like every. That's like every third house.
0: Yeah. Well, hold hold on. Wait. So,
2: what time period for four hundred fires? November twenty twenty to October twenty twenty one. That's like more than a fire a day. It's that's a bad. lot of
0: fires. Wow. It's
2: bad. And why know, wasn't it. that
0: in the news? <laughs> okay, Michael. <laughs> stop the pandering. Let Let Ashley tell us about problem properties. <laughs>
2: And yeah, again, I'm getting calls from community members who are constantly having properties next to them catch fire, damaging their own properties. So this is a extremely urgent matter. And it's really reached a boiling point. It deserves attention. It was the very first motion I made as a councillor to bring back a report on options to address problem properties. And, you know, we are limited as, as members of council in our authority to launch or conduct investigations. But we do have powers related to taxation, fines and other bylaw actions. So I'm going to be looking at, you know, additional tools for enforcement for both tenant-occupied and vacant derelict prom properties, uh, as well as things like property tax subclasses so that there is financial penalties applied to these properties. So April 11th, really important. Um, And again, I don't think there's been enough attention given to this really important issue.
0: Well, we look forward to uh, seeing that coming up. Um, Michael, given that I gave Ashley an opportunity, is there anything else that's coming up that you want to plug?
3: Yeah, I wanted to plug on April 11th. There's a report coming back to City Council on problem properties. (laughs) And it's really important because it's not just about those derelict homes in your neighborhood. It's also about vacant and underused lots. In Ward Papasteo, there's a number of situations where we had a developer, try and maybe commence a project, maybe do a demolition, but we now have a hole in the ground or we have a parking lot or we have a, a you know, a, an abandoned site that's not generating wealth for the community. And one of my favorite quotes is, all of us in the city have to work except for the vacant lot. Every year, land speculators get to sit on property around our city that's blight to us but is incremental profit to them. And that's gotta stop. And I think what Council Salvador has brought forward is an innovative approach at broadening the scope of what are problem properties, what are nuisance hazards to our city. And this is something I heard about quite a bit, that we all want to live in a beautiful city. We all wanna live in a city where like, why is it fair that your property taxes are, you know, going up or, or are maintaining while this empty property here they're not paying a spec in tax compared to you, but yet their value is going up and up and up. Why? Because our community is working hard to build value and beauty in the community. They're reaping the benefits of it without even having to lift a finger. So it's ridiculous and it's got to stop. And uh, I think that uh, Councillor Salvador's motion is actually going to give us a lot of tools, not just to deal with that uh that vacant house down the street that's, you know, ran out of windows and is a fire hazard, but also to deal with some of these other problem properties, even even downtown, looking at parking lots, looking at closed up shops. There's a lot of tools now that will be opened up at our disposal.
0: Well, uh, Councillor Jans is talking about a strong, vibrant community that he wants to live in. And the Well Endowed podcast by the Edmonton Community Foundation, hosted by Andrew Paul and Elizabeth Bonkink, explores exactly the impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton the strong, vibrant city to live in. The Edmonton Community Foundation helps people create endowment funds, and the podcast tells the stories of how those endowments intersect with the community. You can always listen to episode 119, The Dash Fund. On this episode, we find out how The Dash Fund helps keep the memory of a very special pet alive while supporting pets in need. Wow, Mac, that that sounds like an episode I got to listen to. I think
1: that's one you should check out, Troy.
0: Literally, uh when users are listening to this podcast, I will have gone to the Humane Society Tuesday and adopted an orange pretty guy named George. So, episode 119 seems like a thing to listen to. You can subscribe at the podcast.com. Well, thanks so much, Counselor Jans, Council Salvador for uh saving us uh with a Last minute, we need to fill an episode. And I think what we ended with is actually an informative, interesting episode. So you were worried at the start about, can you have enough content to fill? I think, I think we did it. We did it. Woohoo. Devin. <laughs> Love it. Perfect. Thanks so much for joining us. We will be back, Mac and I, uh, next week with a regular episode of Speaking Municipally. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. I'm Michael. I'm Ashley. And we're yeah, Speaking speaking. <laughs> Michael, I know what you did there CBC (laughs) You're welcome back anytime